Welcome to Booked, the Warmed and Bound Sessions. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Warmed and Bound is an anthology published by Velvet Press, consisting of just under 40 short stories, all by authors who are members of or involved in the Velvet, an online community of authors and fans of the trio, Will Christopher Bayer, Craig Clevenger, and Stephen Graham Jones. Warmed and Bound was released on July 22nd. Stephen Graham Jones started writing in 1990 in an emergency room. Ten years later, his first novel came out, and since then, there have been six more and two collections. Jones has also had some 130 stories published, anthologized, and included in annuals and textbooks, and he still finds himself in the emergency room more than he really planned. Jones teaches in the MFA program at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and has been a member of the Velvet since 2005. Stephen was nice enough to join us for an interview today. Stephen, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us here at Booked. Man, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, so your involvement in the Velvet is a bit different than uh, the other authors that we've been interviewing for Warmed and Bound. Um, seeing as you didn't find the Velvet as much as it found you, how do you feel that that community has changed over the years? Well, I came on in, I'm guessing, about 05 or so. Um, the way it's changed that I've noticed is... I think it's the way all bulletin boards change. It's just different mods, different people who are running it for this year or that year. Um, lots of people who were the the big players when I signed on to the Velvet when they first invited me to be part of it, they don't they're not around anymore. They've gone to other things, other places, and um, it's strange not seeing them there. And it's neat when they pop back in, but um, it's I think it's just the natural evolution of bulletin boards. They they cycle through people, you know. Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about your story in Warmed and Bound, The Road Lester Took? Yeah, The Road Lester Took. When I was, I guess Logan hit me up for a story for this, for Warmed and Bound, and I somehow had the sense, I guess from reading posts on the Velvet or somewhere, that it was going to be a, not necessarily a noir anthology, but it was going to have those leanings anyways, kind of dark noir kind of stuff. Kind of stuff. And um, so I went to my directories and cycled through, my story directories and cycled through what I might have that wasn't, you know, published or on the way to being published. And um, I was nervous because I thought, oh, man, I don't, I don't got nothing. And um, But the trick is, um, it's not really a good trick. Whenever I write stories, I give them the stupidest possible titles, and I never can find them, and I always put them in directories that I don't really use. And It's like I'm shooting myself in the foot. But the good thing is, two or three years later, I'll be cleaning stuff up, and I'll find, find a story and go, man, I can't believe I wrote that. It's actually half decent. And that's what happened with this Road Lester took. Um, I wrote it. I wrote it and this other story about Jesus standing on the side of the road holding a sign or something. I wrote them in the same week, I think. And um, the Jesus one blew up, never did work. And um, I forgot that I wrote Lester, and so he was just sitting on my hard drive. And when Logan said we need something, I started looking through, peeling through the directories for something that would maybe fit a little bit with you know crime. And um, sure enough, and there's Lester down in that basement playing poker for drugs, inviting strippers to his house, having all kinds of fun. Um, as for the story itself, it's my favorite type of story to write. It's where I just have a first line, a paragraph, and no clue at all how it's going to play out. Um, I had no idea with Lester, well, I don't want to spoil it, but the final scene, the, I, didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't know what was going to happen at all. It totally surprised me. And um, hmm. It's kind of like, in stories, you always want the worst possible thing to happen to see how your characters deal with it. And I think that's what happened in this story. I wanted to totally, like, stick something under his life and just wedge him to a different place, you know? And um, I don't know, it kind of, it seemed to happen for me. But as for, you know, as for where that story comes from, I think I've said this somewhere. I don't know, maybe on the Velvet, I don't know where. Oh, maybe in the back of Warm and Bound, even. Um, where it comes from is doing those Lamaze classes with my wife when she was pregnant with her first kid. I remember one time we showed up for class, and I don't know, we had so many people registered for that class, but half of them didn't show up. You know, there were only like 20 of us there, 20 couples anyways, big old, big old room. And so the people who were running, they ordered all these sandwiches, and I'm, and, and you know, as broke as could be, you know. And I'm, and so after the class was over, after we learned how to breathe and all that stuff, which I didn't, I didn't learn nothing, I just stood there, of course, um, after all that. I, asked, I went up and asked the teacher, I said, hey, what about those sandwiches, all those people who didn't come? 
And she, you could tell she was heartbroken because she had designs on those sandwiches too. But I thought I was more poor than her, so I needed them. So I took home, I think, 18 turkey sandwiches of some sort. And, um, man, I ate for a week. I was so happy. Um, and so I had this fascination with – I just – like places where I get free food become um, – really actual, really real for me, I think. And that final place where Lester and his wife end up at Lamaze class, that's felt really, really real to me. That's funny that you mentioned that because um, when I was reading that, I mean, I had a bunch of impressions about different parts of the story, but when I was reading that Lamaze class, you know, I was like, this feels pretty authentic. This is one of the, (laughs) I was like, this is, this is going to be coming from a place that he knows. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely the poker is not from a place I know. I don't, I don't play cards and I don't understand, don't understand poker really, but, um, I do understand having criminal friends and I was going through some workman's comp. Yeah. At the time I was going through some workman's comp stuff too. I forgot about that. And so that's where the detective comes in, you know? Yeah, Lester, and again, not to give away too much of the story, but as as terrible as Lester's life becomes, um, it was really, I thought, one of the more fun stories. Just kind of, uh, just kind of the path it took was a, a little more fun than some of the other ones we've read. So I really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. Yeah, he was he's like a cartoon to me. You know, like I see him as <laughs> yep. the whole his whole story is just these people are caricatures who are around him. You know. Yep. Yeah, like a continuing like series of just things happening to him. On yeah. 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 <laughs> When you were talking about um, looking looking for a story for Warm to Bound, you mentioned uh, a, a directories and stuff like that. So I guess my question that I want to go into is something about how many of the guests that we've we've talked about with Warm to Bound, the other authors that we've we've interviewed who know you or know of you, talk about just the amount of input. I guess the pace of how much you write, and and you saying directories made me think of that. Um, so what's your process for writing and how can you be so uh, prolific with how much you, your out, how much output you have? You know, I think it's like, I don't have to get inspired to write. I'm just compelled to write. If I'm not writing, then I think, why am I even here? You know, why not just put a gun in my mouth? I'm useless. You know, I'm like writing is how I make sense of the world. But I think also I don't, I don't write on a schedule. Like I'm always still jealous of those, those interviews I read where the writer says, um, yeah, I wake up at 6, have some coffee, which I hate coffee, so I don't understand that part. And then I write from 7 to 11 every day, and then I go mow the lawn and go to the bank and do all my other stuff. And I'm like, I can't. To me, that sounds like a job. You know, it's like I have to check in. I have to clock in and clock out. I can't imagine doing that. Um, and so, I, like, I'll go three or four days with not doing any writing at all. I'll just watch, you know, Rockford Files and be completely happy with life. But, um then sure enough, you know, Jim Rockford will look at somebody in a way and the story just opens up for me and I'm down for the computer and I'm lost there for three days, you know, like forgetting to eat, forgetting to sleep and everything. Um, so I just write in benches, in benches, I guess. And um, But yeah, um, I guess I, I do kick out a lot of stuff, a lot of books. Um, and the reason, like just in May, I guess it was, I wrote the sequel to It Came From Del Rio. I mean, part of it was I told my publisher I'd write it in May, but also... I first found this out when I wrote this novel called um, The Dog Mother. It's that um, I don't want to be in these novels too long because I lose my grasp on what's real and what's fiction. So um, I think Dog Mother, it's a novel about terrible, terrible things happen. It'll never, it'll never get published. Um, but it's such bad stuff was happening. It was making me sick the whole time I was writing, like physically ill, like I couldn't eat. And so I would just make myself sit at the computer 10 hours a day. And it wasn't like a job. It was like I had to get this out of my brain, onto the page, so that I wanted to think about it anymore. And six weeks later, bam, I had it. I could go on with my life, you know, write happy Lester stories or something, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, if, like for me, four or six weeks is about the cap for writing a novel novel these days anyways um which isn't to say i won't go back into it i don't know sometime maybe in the fall i don't know sometime i took a a little bit of time and i wrote a zombie novel the gospel of z and i loved it and i was being stupid because it was a terrible novel but then i went so i went back and read it had some people read it and they said yeah it's a stupid novel and um and but i thought i thought i thought it's still got a good skeleton you know it's got a good dramatic arc it's i like these zombies and so i tore it all well first what i did was i sucked that that story into a screenplay so I could identify the dramatic line better. And then I went back and put new flesh on it, totally new voice, totally new characters and everything. And um, so that novel, I guess you could say, it really took me longer than I'm saying four or six weeks to write. That's because I wrote it twice, you know? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mind rewriting stuff at all. But I, I do hate abandoning novels, though. Um, I only have right now three novels that I've abandoned as 
two broken. Well, I don't know about two broken. One of them is too broken. The other two, I think, are salvageable if I put enough effort into it. Um, but yeah, I do. I kick out a lot of stuff. It's like I think I want to be. I don't know. I want to take over the world with fiction, you know. And you don't take over the world with fiction by writing one book every six years. You take over the world with fiction by pulling back on your bow and shooting as many arrows as you can, and one of them's going to find its mark, you know. So, like I think by 2014, I'll have five or six more books out. You know, they're just all arrows. I'm lobbing at the world trying to stick it right through the heart, you know? Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a, yeah, that's a really great way to say it. I really like that. Um, as far as inspiration goes, it sounds like you, you, you take inspiration from practically, you know, any experience that just kind of catches your mind and makes you think, is that, is that accurate? Like you just, do you just take kind of, uh, impressions from daily life and, and expand on them until they become something bigger? I do, yeah. Well, it's, I guess it's part of just how my imagination works. Or, I, I mean, I guess people would call it imagination. I call it suspicions or certainties. Really, I'm <laughs> like whenever I'm, whenever I'm, you know, I'm at somebody's house and it's eight forty-five, and the people who are supposed to show up for dinner were supposed to be there at eight, and they're not there, and everybody's saying, "Oh, they forgot," or you know, they had some people come over, they had they had something happen. And I'm, I'm always nodding and smiling, saying, yeah, but really what I know happened is they get abducted by aliens. They're going to show up, and it's they're, they're still going to think it's 8 o'clock, you know? And I'm, so I, I'm always, like, for me, I'm always wedging the possible into the real world, you know? And that possible is what I believe in. But I think one of the best places to get ideas is standing in line at the food court, because you hear the, you know, 13-year-old girls in front of you talking about what happened at school in gym class on Wednesday, and you never hear the whole conversation. But the pieces that you miss here are, you know, nine times out of ten, they're magic. You just write them down, and it automatically blooms into a story, whether you want it to or not, you know? So, yeah, I do I do steal from the world, of course, but often end up off-world as well, you know? You mentioned that you have the sequel from It Came to Del Rio written, and we know you have some other books that are just waiting to be published. How does that affect you, that you have work that's kind of backlogged before it hits books? Like you had said, you have to get it out of your system to write it. Once it's written and it's done, is it? are you okay with waiting for it to go public, or, or does that bother you in some way? Oh, no, it completely bothers me. It drives me crazy. It makes me feel like a loser. You know, I've, I hate it. I hate having stuff in the drawer. And I think the reason I hate it is because of, um, well, I mean, a big part of it is Stephen King's novel, The Bag of Bones. You remember that? Uh, it's, yes. It's it's where that novelist is living on the island, and I don't know he conjure he you know he's involved in this ghost story, and he's able to keep on because he has four novels in the drawer. He's able to keep feeding his publisher novels, and so everybody thinks things are fine for four years, but those four years are hell for him because he's dealing with ghosts and all this terrible stuff, you know. And so I keep thinking the way to not have ghosts is to not have novels in the drawer. You know, I don't want to have bad stuff happen to me like that. Um, but yeah, I think I think anybody if you write what you think is a perfect short story mail it off to 50 journals, they all reject you. Then, number one, you hate all those journals and you hate the world and everything, but you feel like a failure. And so no matter how many novels I have, if I have a novel left in the drawer that I can't sell, I'll, I feel like a failure. Um, and actually, I've got I've got one like that now. I've, we're just finally getting that out into the market a little bit. It's called The Least of My Scars. It's tremendously violent and disturbing, so I think the content is going to scare a lot of people away. Or at least that's the lie I'll tell myself. It could be the quality of the writing or the crappy story or something, you know. But I really believe in the story as much as I'm scared to. Um, so, but I think you've got to—you can't write novels that you know are going to get published either. I mean, it's—it's—you've got to keep your audience in mind, of course, um, and you've got to stick fast to your vision. But um, I don't know. You just—you've got. Well, it's like you've got to insist on your vision. I guess so that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. So. I guess my question would be, a lot of people go the self-publishing route. Does that not seem legitimate to you? Like, would you rather have it go through the traditional shopping it around and having it picked up by someone um, process? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of still stuck with the old model where the editorial bottleneck is our you know, vague assurance of quality. With the idea is that only one novel makes it through the bottleneck, whereas 50 others get rejected because they weren't good enough. Um, when really it's just the editor's taste. But we, we kind of have this implicit, implicit trust in editors, you know, that they've been around the block a few times, they know what's good, what's bad. Um, you know, five years ago, Bandy Publishing would have been really frowned upon. These days, mm -hmm. it's changing. It, people don't call it Bandy Publishing anymore, it's just self-publishing. And um, it's, so, it's so easy, and I don't know, I mean, I don't know if it'll ever be the 
the new model just because individuals don't have the marketing power of the big corporations. But um, it's definitely a model to contend with, I think, and it doesn't have the stig stigma it used to have. Um, and it's it's a way to make money. You you know you've got the retailer taking a cut, and you get the rest of it pretty much. You know, I mean it's attractive, but um, I haven't done it yet, anyways. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Zank and the reprint label? Yeah, well, what what it is is that um, they had already accepted my Not For Nothing novel and my Flushboy novel for publication in 2013 and 2014 as both ebooks and um, print. But um, then they started this reprint with a capital E, you know, for electronic. Um, they it's, edgy. Just, it's edgy that way. <laughs> it sure is, man. Yes, for edgy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Then they started up that reprint line, and they hit me up, and they said, hey, what about your back catalog? What do you have that's both out of print and you have the rights to? And I was like, I don't know. I've never read one of my contracts. You know, I just may just send them to me. I sign them, and then I lose them. You know, That's the way it all happens. And um, so I wrote my agent, and we figured out what I might have the rights to. And she wrote some letters to publishers to figure out what I had the rights to. And it turned out I had the rights to um, the, long, the Long Trial of Nolan Dugatti from Chiasmus and All the Beautiful Sinners from Rugged Land. And I had been itching to bit for years to rewrite um, All the Beautiful Sinners. Um, even right when it was published, I thought it was too bulky. I didn't think it moved fast enough. I thought it took, I thought it was, uh, it was like a lot of me indulging myself in pretty sentences, you know, which the author should never be allowed to do that, I don't think. Um, or not the fiction writer, anyways. Um, and and I said, yeah, we got these two. You want to run with them? And Dan Wicked over there, he said, sure, sounds great. But then I hit him up another email, and I said, hey, um, what about this other novel that's not a reprint, but it's not strictly a debut either, Seven Spanish Angels, and um, which was supposed to come out in '05, but um, got in a big fight with the publisher and everything. It died. It was on Amazon like it was real, but it wasn't really real. And he said, sure. So um, we're, they're doing Seven Spanish Angels. Came out today, actually. Which, if this is Tuesday, it came out yesterday. And so it's the debut novel in their reprint series, which isn't, it's not actually a reprint, but um, I, I love that novel. I love Seven Spanish Angels, and I'm so happy to be getting it and Dugati and Beautiful Sinners out on an e format because it, when ebooks, e readers first popped up, I mean, instantly, not instantly, but I knew that that's the way everything was going to go because it was just so convenient, so intuitive. But I didn't, I honestly didn't think it was going to happen as fast as it's happening. I thought it was going to be a 10 year cycle. I think we're more on like a three or four year cycle. I think really soon the P book, as it's called, I guess, is going to be a collector's limited edition thing. You know, brick and mortar stores are by and large going to go bye bye, you know, and it'll be all, all E, which I'm cool with, you know. I mean, I love bookstores, don't get me wrong, but, um, I like I like instantaneousness of just being able to click on something and have it on my my reader immediately, and I like that my readers can do that as well. Okay, you just gave us like four follow up questions, <laughs> um, so we're just gonna kind of run through them in order, and if we skip over something, that's fine too. But uh, let's talk Seven Spanish Angels first. Like you said, um, in our time machine fashion, um, this will have come out yesterday. You want to talk a little bit more about what it's about at all? Yeah, it's about, well, we all know about the Juarez murders, if from nowhere else, from Robert Bollano, but um, it was big It was big news back in, you know, 05 when I was writing this, or 04 also, but, um, you know, it's about the girls being found out in the desert dead, um, and the, the Seven Spanish Angels, what it is, it's seven days and seven girls, um, somebody's trying to kill seven girls in seven days, and um, our lead investigator, our protagonist, is this um, young girl, Marta Villarreal. She's, what, 22, I guess? She's not even officially out of um, crime tech school yet. And um, her boyfriend, who is AWOL at the moment for, most, for the novel, is um, the main suspect, because he used to work the Lote Bravo uh, murders, which are the Juarez, the Juarez women. And she has to she has to figure out who's doing it and stop it from happening. And of course, um, she's one of these seven women who are supposed to be killed. And um, this is a novel that I wrote, I think it, right now it's probably 300, 350 pages. I wrote about 2,000 pages to get it down, though. Um, I took it, to, it was supposed to be a sequel to All the Beautiful Sinners. I took it to my publisher. I'd written 300 or so pages, and he put his finger down at, like, I don't know, page two or page six, and he said, you know, let's chop it all off and start here and so he did that about six or seven times and he'd, he'd get deeper in the book 50 pages 70 pages and i have to start all over but i didn't mind because i don't mind doing a whole lot of writing and um it did improve the book tremendously it's it's a really tight novel i think 
I burned back through it with I was going to fix everything because I thought surely it's a five-year-old book it's going to be all kinds of stuff broken man I burned back through it and there was just typos and not even many of those it's it it, it went through the ringer enough that it's very clean now and I'm very proud of it you mentioned um, having an ebook reader, and I know on your blog I read a really interesting thing. Um, it was the pros and cons of of um, paper books and ebooks a while back, and it was just really great stuff. So I guess my big question after all that is: so whose reader do you use? Right now I'm on. I've got a Kindle too, and I keep trying to stage falls, you know, for it to break because I want I want a Kindle three or I want that new I want that new Nook or something. But now my Kindle won't break. I broke my first Kindle too, real easy. This one just won't break. Um, although, and maybe this is just like contagion i knocked my macbook pro the other day i dropped it on the ground in a really ugly way and it's not acting happy anymore so um i don't know i need gadgets i need more gadgets um i, I was all, i was all happy about that google reader i thought that was going to be well, that's because that's where the reader needs to go we need to have a um a retailer free platform we need to have something that we can just go to amazon or go to barnes and nobles or go to google or go to the library and just get whatever format they have and read it on the reader you know um i think as long as these as long as the readers are specific to different companies that it's going to be too fragmented i think we need a single you know we need one reader to unite them all or something when uh you said that you accidentally dropped your macbook pro i cringed a little bit i don't know if you've listened to any of the other uh any reviews that we've been doing, but um, I'm a big, big Apple person, and uh-huh. Livius is definitely on the Windows side of things, and he always <laughs> makes fun of me about. Uh, but I, I actually, I think I felt a little pain when you just told us that. Yeah, man, I, I felt pain. I had to trade in my iPhone because I couldn't get reception at my house with AT and T. This is before Verizon had the iPhone, so now I've got a Droid. I like it's it's a fun thing, but I miss my iPhone. Yeah. yeah. So I've, I, you mentioned gadgets before, and actually, I was uh, when I was doing a little research on you before we did this. Um, I think I saw somewhere else that you're into gadgets too. So, um, yeah. what, what kind of stuff are you? And you may have already answered this with your ebook thing, but um, what kind of gadgets are you looking forward to uh, uh, that's coming out, or, or what's what do you get geeked out the most on? You know, I like the I like the look of that. Um what is it? The Sony S2 tablet. I mean, I'm not. I've never real, been real big on Sony. I know they. I know they do quality stuff, but um, it seems like it never. The Sony stuff never plays well with my Macs, you know. So I don't like them that much. But I like the way that S2 looks because it's a tablet that folds in the middle like a little DS or something, you know. And that would be so handy to just have a clamshell thing I could stick in my pocket like a, um, like an eyeglass case, and then fold it open on the bus and go to town, you know. I would love that. I, I, I like that split screen idea. Or I, I, I would like to play with it anyways um i don't have a tablet right now um i think it's because i thought man i've got my nose in my phone all the time anyways what am i going to do with a bigger phone you know just take up all my time but um, i'm still jealous of those people i see with you know ipads or different <laughs> tablets that they cock it open just on wherever they are and they get the little bluetooth keyboard and man they're cooking and i think they're doing work and i'm just sitting here listening to songs or something yeah you mentioned actually in an email to us uh that you're teaching a class and it has to do with zombies. You want to tell us about that? That sounds exciting. We've talked to a lot of people about zombies, so I always cool. like yeah. hearing stuff about that. Yeah, it's a zombie renaissance, and um, it's a, it's an online course for continuing it, continuing ed here at CU Boulder. They invited me to teach it, and I jumped on it, of course, because I just have because the the the, the wonderful thing about a online course is you can just give your students like six times too much to read, and they have to read <laughs> it, you know, in a, in a you know it's in a chalk and you know seats classroom you have to you have to police yourself a little bit but online you can just go crazy um and i've got so many cool zombie stories i've found and so much old like i have the class but in split into five units we go proto zombie then we go let's see what do we do proto pre haitian romero rage and then post maybe it's six units i don't know yeah, so we go all the way back to Tibet, you know, for the Relangs, those 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 freaky zombies, and go through the hopping corpses of um, China and up through the revenants of um, the Dark Ages, I guess, and come up and try to read Poe, you know, the house, the follow the House of Usher, such that it's a zombie story, and you know, the Monkey's Paw, W.W. Jacobs, which I think is a zombie story, and then we luck on to all the anthro enthusiast stuff happening when people porting these zombie stories up out of Haiti in the early 20th century for a terrified America or a guilty America who was scared of a um, underclass rising against them and all that and then you have Lovecraft bam you know 1920 what 1922 he gives us um, he gives us 
these zombies that are hungry that rend you limb from limb that um that walk around in hordes. He was the first dude to say horde with an association with zombies. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, I found I found some cool old stories. Like I found this one story. It cost I think it cost 142 dollars for me to get a photo, like just taking a picture of out of some Australian library that I don't think anybody reads anymore. And it's a old old zombie story that's so good. Um, and then we jump up to Romero. You know how he he gave us um, flesh eating and infectiousness and the all important headshot. You know, and um, we stay we stay with Romero for a while and have fun with him. We get to Return of the Living Dead, which I love. Return of the Living Dead. That's probably my favorite zombie movie. Even though Max Brooks says it killed the zombie the zombie movie the zombie story, which it did. But then Boyle Boyle brought it back in '02 with 28 Days Later, and the Resident Evil was that same year. And then the year the next year was the Zombie Survival Guide, which was actually a defense manual for Romero zombies, but we were already in the rage era. And <laughs> man, then then World War Z, and now here we are with you know Rambach and mutants and the horde. We've got zombies, these rage zombies, developing in really interesting ways. And in that class, that's what we're trying to figure out: is why the zombie craze right now, and where is it going? Those are the two main questions. Wow, that's that's all I can say about the brief history of, of zombies <laughs> that I just heard. Uh, all right, so I have a couple of follow up questions then for you. Of all the zombie types, which one? Uh, which whose camp are you in? Uh, I prefer the rage zombies. I think they make for more exciting stories because any plans that the characters make are always um, frustrated by these zombies that are so fast. And what the trick the trick of the rage zombie is. Um, like our trick, we, we you know, we, as humans, we grew up as persistence hunters. We could run an antelope down until it died, and then we just stab a spear through its side and have us some food, you know? Um, our lungs and our long legs were always our, our real, I mean, our lungs, our long legs, and our intelligence were the three things that separated us from animals. But now you have these um, rage zombies, and um, they they don't need to breathe, or maybe, maybe they breathe, but um, their hunger, like, out balances their um, need to stop running because they're hurting themselves. And so a rage zombie is never going to stop chasing you. And for that reason, they're terrifying. Um, although on an individual level, I would hate to, hate to encounter a rage zombie, but on a global level, I think the Romero zombie is finally more effective because I think Romero zombies infect the population better because they're so slow. They just get like one bite out of you. Then you run away to the safe place and you infect everybody else, you know, um, whereas a rage zombie, man, they bite onto you. They're chewing for a while and they got you, you know, and, ha and Haitian zombies, nobody's scared of Haitian zombies. Um, the Haitian zombie, the, the, it developed because of a cultural fear of enslavement. You know, what's worse than being enslaved your whole life? Well, being enslaved during death too, you know, but in America, we're not so scared of that anymore. We're scared of, you know, um, marketing campaigns turning, turning us into mindless consumers and that kind of stuff. I have something that, um, <laughs> I risk really outing myself as like far <laughs> huge, a far huger geek than I ever, um, have admitted, uh, at least not on a, on a, <laughs> audio podcast that other people will listen to but um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i have a pr pretty okay knowledge of how role-playing games like dungeons and dragons work and yeah. now traditionally in let's say dungeons and dragons zombies have kind of a, a a seriously different element that they can be defeated by uh religious people like the whole uh -huh. kind of a uh -huh. holy aspect and stuff that it's uh -huh. it's not something that you see in your traditional zombie movies and stuff so does that yeah. ever come up in your class or do you address that at all or you know it doesn't come up um we talked a little bit about the priest and not living dead but we didn't talk about it very much but um yeah it's a good point the clerics in D D, they, they they always have power over the undead and i think that must be a kind of like a port across from the vampire you know like the right yeah, I think I think that that was probably a sloppy move on D and D's part, or you know whoever <laughs> created the world at the time. But but no, I completely understand those eighteen sided dice, man. I nearly fell out of college playing D and D. It's <laughs> I miss it so much. I weaned myself off of D and D with magic, you know. But magic was pretty addictive too, and then I weaned myself off of magic with settlers, and then I finally um, don't have anybody to play settlers with anymore. So I just write <laughs> write fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the more profitable of those <laughs> ventures, too. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. one more follow-up on zombies, and then we're done, only because we've had to quiz a couple other authors on this. Assuming Romero-type uh, needing brain death zombies, um, if you were in the zombie apocalypse and your choice was sword or sledgehammer, which one would you go with? 
I think I would go for sword, not because it's more effective, but because I'd feel cooler. And I think, <laughs> I think the zombie apocalypse, the plague, it's not really about surviving. It's about having the the best death, you know. And I think I would have a much better death with a sword. It would look a lot more dramatic if Frank, you know, Frazetta were to draw it or something than if I had a sledgehammer. Um, yep. So yeah, I'd go for the sword, especially like a katana or something. Something like not a long sword. I don't. I wouldn't know how to swing a long sword, and I wouldn't do much use. I wouldn't be much use of the rapier or a cutlass or any of that. But I've seen enough um, martial arts movies that I think I could pretend in my head that I knew how to use a katana. You know. It's where we all learned our katana abilities. Is uh, Kung, Kung Fu Sunday. Exactly. Yeah. For the record, Livius had chosen sword in a previous episode, and I, <laughs> I had chosen sledgehammer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Back to teaching a little bit. Um, I'm assuming that the the zombie class isn't the only thing you teach. So, are there any other authors that you think are important to teach in your classes um, that you want to mention? You know, I don't. In the other classes I teach, I taught you know slasher. I taught haunted house. Um, and. I guess, let me think, in Haunted House, King was pretty important, and Shirley Jackson was pretty important, but um, in Fiction Workshop, which is really what I teach the most of, that's what they hired me here for, um, man, I don't know if there's any author, I, I have two or three, maybe, uh, probably probably 10 or 12, like, clutch stories that I try to walk people through just so they can understand how a story works somewhat, or they, so they can see that I don't understand how a story works either way, but... Um, the way I keep those fiction workshops interesting to me usually is I um, don't have a textbook. The first day of class, the assignment I give is every one of y'all go out in the library, go out in the world, go out to the magazine rack and find, you have to read at least 10 stories, ideally 15. You have to prove to me that you read them. You have to give me an annotated bibliography. And you have to bring the best of those stories to us, you know, 18 or 20 copies so we can all read it. And that's our textbook for the year, or those 18 or 20 stories they bring. And so I get to read a lot of stories that I would not have otherwise found. And um, it's all new, you know. And I think that the things that I might have to say about these stories probably or hopefully rings a little more true because it's not canned. I haven't said this to 15 other classes, you know? So no, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have any writers that I say you have to read him or her. Um, I just have ideas about story that I try to pass on. That's really, really cool and unique. I like that. I, I was just going to say the same thing. Okay. That being said, since you're not recommending students read some, some um, writers, who are your influences? Uh, Stephen King is probably my big influence. Joe Lansdale is a huge influence. Just because when you ask Joe Lansdale what genre does he write in, he'll say the Joe Lansdale genre. And I think, wow, I would love to have the Stephen Jones genre, or really the Stephen Graham Jones genre, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I'm so jealous that they can do that. Um, Gerald Visner, American Indian writer, Anishinaabe guy, he, he's one of my heroes. He's just really talented, really intelligent. I like Sherman Alexie's stuff a lot. Um, Philip K. Dick is my idol. Vonnegut is what I would aspire to if I even could begin to aspire, but I'll never be able to write like Vonnegut. Um, Nabokov, I respect Nabokov so much. He had such an intellect. It just blows me away. Um, at the same time, like um, C.J. Box, he's just a, he's a detective writer, um, or what do they call it, mystery writer, I guess. And um, He's able to put stuff on the page in a way in which I cannot put that book down, and I so wish I had that, that talent. You know, I, Every time I write, I'm trying to write like C.J. Box, I think. Um, one writer that people don't read anymore very much is Charles McCary. He had a series of spy novels, the Paul Christopher novels, of six, seven of them. And that guy, he he was like, you know, Stanislaw Lem kind of smart, but he had Dan Brown's sense of story, you know, and I was, he just had, like, he was the complete package. And, I mean, I'm, you know, I say nobody reads him anymore. They were probably reading him like crazy back when he was publishing in the 70s and 80s, back when I was reading only horror. I wouldn't read anything but horror or Conan, you know, but, um, <laughs> So I missed out on his stuff when it was happening, but I'm glad to have found it afterwards. Um, oh, and also, wait, wait, can I mention also, <laughs> Louise Erdrick, she is a, she's been a huge influence on me, especially Love Medicine, but the way she was able to like dilate Love Medicine in that whole Machi Manitu series of books, which I don't even know how high it's gone now. But um, Love Medicine, to me, is one of the truly magical books we've got, and every I hold every one of the endings for my novels up against that to see, is it even in the arena of getting close to that, you know? You mentioned Joe Lansdale, and I've been trying to get Rob to read the Happ and Leonard series for oh, yeah. probably a couple of years now, just fantastic <laughs> stuff. Unfortunately, and, and again, to fess up, all I've read from him is the Happ and Leonard series and Bubba Hotep, which yeah, was, again, yeah. just absolutely fantastic, but um, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Lansdale well, does really have his, his own way. He really does, man. And he, he just, um, he, he has like a, he has like a laughter in his stories, but he's not afraid to pull that rug out from under you either and make you, you know, split your head open on the floor. He's just really kind of magic. He's got a lot of confidence too. I think that helps tremendously. So, uh, Going back to the beginning in the beginning of the world, how did you get started in writing? I guess I figured out I could write. It was it maybe the fourth grade. I read Where the Red Fern Grows. It took me four checkout periods because I was not at all a quick reader. I kept having to go back to figure out what was going on and everything. And um, I got to the end of it, and I'm, I'm sure you all have read it. The, at the end, there's a axe head stuck in a tree, and there's a rusted lantern hanging on it. And um, and I, that's like the closing image. And I hope I'm not spoiling it for everybody, but um. <laughs> And there's also a werewolf. I'll add that, so people will be expecting stuff. But um, I, I remember when I was in fourth grade, I thought my first thought when I closed that book was, I can do that. You know, I can stick an axe head in a tree and hang a lantern on it. I have, I, I just had a sense that I knew how to do that. And so then, all through all my, you know, various stupid stuff I did for the next ten or fifteen years, I always knew that I could write and that I probably would write. But um, I never planned on it. I didn't plan on going to college. I was just going to lease a tractor and get a trailer and be a custom farmer. That was my big dream. But um. I did some writing in high school. Nothing. I didn't go to much. I didn't go to much high school. But the writing I did was um, these long, long notes, apology notes. I would write to girls and leave under their windshield wipers, you know, so I could get back into the into this into this fun, you know. And um, and so that's. I think that's the purest form of writing because if it's not compelling, if it's not rhetorically powerful, then you're out in the cold, man. You don't know what you're doing. But then I went to school. I was a philosophy major. Well, I went to I went to Surprise, you know, college. Um, the only reason I went to college was I wanted to take this girl. This this girl, I wanted to go out with her, but you know, she was untouchable. But then I found out she needed a ride to the SATs, and I thought, oh, this is my chance because I had a truck, you know. And so I called her up. I said, let's go take the SATs together. And she said, sure. And so I took the SATs, not paying attention, but evidently did pretty good on them, and got into. And my mom behind my back submitted into school so I ended up going to school for my first year as an archaeology major because I wanted to be Indiana Jones but that <laughs> fell through pretty quickly and I became a philosophy major which I loved but then I was in world lit in second semester of freshman I guess and I was 19 years old and big old lecture hall big big class um I forget what book we were talking about but um the police came in and got me out, and I thought, you know, here we go again, because um, I was always having various law troubles. And um, they pulled me out, and I was, you know, well, anyways, um, the, where they delivered me was the hospital, which was completely surprising. And it turns out one of my uncles had been burned over like 90% of his body, third-degree burns. He wasn't expected to live and all that, but there was a, the best burn unit in our part of the country, our part of the state, anyways, was in the town I was in, Lubbock, Texas. And I was the only relative that he had for hundreds of miles around, I guess. And um, and somehow they knew that. I don't know how they knew that. So anyway, they ditched me in the waiting room, and all I had was my spiral and my pen from World Lit. And I was there for three days waiting for him to live, and de- live or die. And I just started doodling around in my notebook. And what I started writing down was this other family story that was there. There was this dad. He was a big old dude. You know, I mean, he wasn't seven feet, but he was six and a half feet, I would guess. Um, he had, it was this was right after Halloween. He had been changing his he had taken his son out trick or treating and he was changing the tire out in the country. He had a flat and um this drunk dude came down the road weaving, slapped him, drug him for a long ways and then spit him out in the ditch and kept driving. And so this guy was a nasty you now. And he kept waking up and fighting and pulling his cords and pushing people away, you know, he was just trying to live and he ended, he ended up dying. But um even though he died, I, I was already writing this story down, so it was like he didn't die for me. I just kept writing and writing and ended up submitting that story to the English class I was in because I hadn't written whatever I was supposed to write. So I asked the teacher, who was trying to get me into witchcraft, too, which was kind of neat. I asked her if I could turn in a story instead, and she said, sure, and she liked it. And I don't know, she submitted it for something, and it won some award, and I got pulled into creative writing. And then my last semester of school there, my counselor, my counselor advisor, told me, if you take one more English class, you can have a creative writing degree. So I did that, and then I only put out two applications for graduate school. One was to philosophy school, and one was to creative writing, and creative writing got back first, so I went there, you know, and then I burned through my PhD in two years, and went to work at Sears, because I never wanted to be a professor, but sure enough, I hurt myself pretty good at Sears, and as soon as I could stand again, I looked for a desk job, and found a desk job at a university library, and then a job opened up in the English department for a creative writing teacher, and I applied and got it, and here I am. 
That's got to be the best origin story that I've 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 heard in a while. <laughs> you were recently nominated for a Bram Stoker Award for the ones that got away, alongside Stephen King, who you mentioned as a writing influence. Um, how was that for you to compete with one of your influences? Oh, it was great. I, I competed in, with him before for a Shirley Jackson Award, and we both got trounced, I guess. But this time, of course, he you know rightfully won. Although really. I mean, he won, but also I feel like Laird Barron won because I know Laird got more votes than I did because he's a better writer, you know. But um, yeah, King's that uh, Full Dark No Stars is a solid collection, you know. Um, when he puts out a collection, everybody notices as they should, I think. But no, it's definitely an honor just to have my name up on that list of finalists with him and with the other guys as well, you know. Hey, um, t- totally changing directions again. <laughs> huh? um, I'm sure that you yeah, you talked to your share of of aspiring or new authors is there any if you could just give them one really quick you know life lesson that they could learn uh on their on their when they're beginning out what would is there anything that you would say yeah it's actually um you know mark vanderpool at the cult just hit me up for this exact same advice what about what 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 uh what suggestion would i give to a, a starting out writer and um I think that suggestion or that advice would be that you're not as smart as you think you are. Yeah, you've got a, yeah, you've read a lot of books, you've seen a lot of movies, you have a lot of stuff in your head, and you can do amazing things with sentences. But um, when you try to put your brain on the page, all you come off then then the story becomes you telling people, look how smart I am, look how good I can do sentences, look how much I know, and that's not the story we want to read. We want to read the story where it's your heart on the page, where you're telling, where you're you're just thinly veiling that time that you had to, you know, go shoot your pet rabbit or something. But you're you're dressing it up different. You're trying to disguise yourself. Um, I think those are the stories that we want to read. We don't we don't want to see you being smart and clever. Um, and uh, I say this as somebody who used to think he was smart and clever. You know. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, now I know I'm just pretty clueless, but lucky sometimes. Of your of your fellow contributors in Warmed and Bound, who are a couple that you think we're going to see some big things from? Oh man, I don't know. I don't know if I should. I don't know. I mean, let me think who's all in there. I always let Livius ask these loaded questions so that I look. Like yeah, I know. Good guy. Yeah, I know. So I, so <laughs> once I, once I say two people, then like all the rest of them hate me, right? Um, <laughs> I think Brian Evanson's gonna go somewhere. But that's an empty statement, I know, because he's already he's already somewhere. Man, I yeah, that know. yeah, that Clevenger guy, he's okay too. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. Yeah, I can't I can't pick. Um I think everybody's doing cool stuff. I don't know. Um talent wise, I think everybody can be somebody. Um, luck wise, it's a different story. You know, luck wise and life wise, like if suddenly life, your life changes and you're living in a different house with a different spouse, then you may not have as much time to write and all your stories may go untold, you know? Um, you may whisper them into your bottle each night, you know? I like that. Uh, what are you currently working on? Oh, I just started a, um, totally not on purpose either. Um, I started a comic book script. I want to do probably 12 issues I'm thinking it's called 13 rides and um I got the I think I think the idea just kind of happened in my head when I was at Stoker weekend I guess up in Long Island and um let's see I was on a comic panel I always hit all the comic and graphic novel panels and um Joe Hill said something just kind of as an aside he said you know how on how on comic books it's always the even numbered pages that get the splash treatment and I, you know, flipped back through my head, and I thought, of course, that's true, but I never had thought about it, you know, I never had really thought about the, the grammar and the syntax of how comic books work, I just thought about the, these great things to ingest, and I mean, I've jacked around with doing comic scripts before, but I'm really sure they've sucked, you know, um, and so then I thought, I, I need to live in that grammar for a while, and so, man, lately I've just been reading so many comic books, it's ridiculous, and I'm just trying to understand how you go from panel to panel how much dialogue will go here and just you know like all the, how the how the dramatic line and the narrative arc should all sync up um and so i've actually taken this is kind of a milestone for me i took i want to say two weeks it could have been 16 days even to write a little 40 or 50 page script you know just a 22 page comic um uh, you know the first episode and i wanted to get it it took me that long because I've been writing it over and over and over and over, just getting it tighter and tighter and tighter. And I think that that's going to come back and, I don't know, affect or inflect or, I don't know, it's going to do something to my fiction, I suspect. Um, I'm, it, 
it's like when you start thinking in panels and captions and dialogue, then it's hard to go back to um, paragraphs and sentences for me, anyways. Um, which shouldn't I say I've been writing, I have written a little bit of fiction lately, but the last couple of weeks it's been mostly that comic script. I am in, I am, I don't know, 120 pages into a novel. Um, uh, our, what is it, an anthropological thriller? Anthropology is still, you know, I say I came to school to be an archaeologist, and that's still probably my one true love is um, trying to figure out why we stood up and walked, you know? And so I'm writing a novel about why we stood up and walked, of course. And um, what else am I doing? Let me think. Um, I think that's it. I've written a couple of stories recently. Let's see, no take backs and the spider box, um, horror, horror stuff, of course. Yeah, but that's it. All right, so you're doing a little bit of writing. What are you looking forward to reading? Um, the book I just got today, um, The Raising of Stony Mayhall, I believe it's called. I cannot remember the writer's name either. I should. That's terrible. I don't have the book by me. Um, but my my friend Paul Tremblay and um, he he was recommending that book really strongly to me a while back. It's a zombie novel. I'm quite excited about that. Although I also picked up that Education of Bruno Littlemore, which I remember reading all about it, you know, in the papers and magazines and everywhere. And I thought, oh, I don't want to read this book. I don't want to read this book. But then I saw it and I thought, well, maybe I'll read this book. You know, but it's really a big old thing. So I don't know if I can have time before the semester starts. And I guess I've got a one of those honking big fantasy novels that somebody hit me up to blurb. So I may do, I may, I may look into that as well. I've got various stacks of comics around. What am I looking forward to reading? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about King's new one, that um, JFK assassination time travel thing. Um, hope I have time for it this semester. I've read his last, his last two big ones. I've read it, you know, right out of the, right out of the box, but hopefully I can do it this time. I'm trying to get Rob excited about that because I want to review it on the show, but he's not a big King fan. Oh, so. yeah. 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 For very superficial reasons. Well, not superficial, <laughs> but just like, just probably really petty. Not even petty, but just not real good reasons, I guess. Yeah. Well, no, I think I think petty reasons are the best reasons. I think petty <laughs> reasons are often why I write, you know, because I want to get back at that sixth grade teacher who told me I wasn't going to amount to anything, you know? Well, the, eh, all right, I won't go into why I don't like King right now, but... <laughs> Lucas has heard it plenty of times. <laughs> um, <laughs> so is there anything else before we start uh, wrapping this up that uh, maybe we forgot to talk about that you'd like to talk about or mention? Let me think. Slashers. We haven't talked about slashers, have we? That's one of my favorite things to talk about. Do y'all like slashers? I do. You do? Yeah, I live for slashers. That's uh, My dream, <laughs> my, my, my most pure dream is to... To write a slasher and see it up on the big screen, you know, I would, I would love, love, love to do that. It's my favorite genre of anything by far. And I'm like I was always, I've always been very partial to like layman style for slasher books. So I don't uh, know how well uh, they translate to the big screen, as I don't uh, yeah. think anybody's tried to do them. But that's yeah, yeah I don't that's think kind so. Of lies. Or yeah. as I refer to it, like horror porn, not for the sex, <laughs> yeah. but just yeah. for the gratuitous, you know, yeah. violence and yeah. Well, I mean, porn is not its not content. It's the shape of the story. It's a series of set pieces strung together by the flimsiest narrative, you know? And that's thats how a slasher can work as well, all these set piece killings strung together by, oh, we're at camp, oh, now we're in the cornfield and all that stuff, you know? But the trick is doing that in a way in which the audience both sees through it but willingly goes there. You know, that, that's the magic of slashers, I think. its um, It's like... You know, all these remakes of slashers, I'm not against them. I've loved, like, Sorority Row and My Bloody Valentine. But um, I think one of the drawbacks of these remakes is they're upping the production value so much that we're, we're losing that, sh- that um, you know, seeing a boom mic or the graininess of the, <laughs> you know, the, the development or whatever. Um, yeah, the and, B-movie feel. Yeah, exactly. And um, and in losing that, like, used to when you'd see that, uh, you know, when you rent your VHS and it's been through it's been through VCRs for 20 years and it, it's got all these warped places and everything, um. You have to lean so far forward out of your couch or your chair into the movie in order to believe in it, in order to suspend your disbelief that you then become vulnerable to whatever that movie is trying to scare you with. But if the production value is really, really slick and glossy, then you can just lean back and you don't have to be scared anymore because you're not investing in yourself. You're not trying to believe. And I think that trying to believe is one of the fundamental dynamics of how horror fiction, horror movies work. You've got to kickstart that urge not that urge you got to kickstart that need in the audience and the reader to want to be in the story even though they know bad stuff is going to happen cool 
Um, only, and again, only because it's come up in the series of interviews no less than four times. Um, and we're talking about horror movies, Paranormal Activity. Thumbs mm-hmm. up, thumbs down. Oh, thumbs up for the first one. Yeah, and I'm excited, <laughs> excited, excited for the third one as well. Yeah, I've got a you can I've got an article on Pop Matters, I guess. What the Pinocchio effect, I think it's called, where I go into how how paranormal activity works and what it does and its dynamic and all that. But yeah, for me, it was a very powerful movie. I'm really glad that Spielberg got to attack that ending on too. It was kind of scary for me. Um, every night. Not every night, but still, when I wake up at two, two or four in the morning, and it's dark in my bedroom, Paranormal Activity is a movie I think of. And then I step off the, I step off the bed, and I think of Emily Rose laying there. And man, it's just terrible. I never go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, your head has to be a pretty frightening place to be most of the time. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, where can people get a hold of you online? DemonTheory.net. DemonTheory.com, StephenGrahamJones.net. They can find me on Google+. Plus. They can find me on Facebook, find me on Twitter. I've got a LinkedIn account, but I don't know what LinkedIn is, really. Um, yeah, but DemonTheory.net is probably the hub, you know? Very cool. <laughs> well, I'm sure that we could sit here and talk to you for, like, hours and hours. This is the most fascinating <laughs> conversation. But I, I just want to thank you for coming on. It was really great, and uh, we were looking forward to talking to you for a while. Thank you, man. It's been my pleasure. I've loved talking to y'all. It's been really fun. Call up anytime. <laughs> Great. We're going to hold you to We're, that. Yep. <laughs> All right. All right thanks Stephen, a lot. Thanks. Again, a big thank you to Stephen Graham Jones. What a good time that <laughs> was. Um, you can catch Stephen at demontheory.net. And you can check out his story, The Road Lester Took in Warmed and Bound, which came out July 22nd. And that'll just about wrap it up for another episode of Booked. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow for the final Warmed and Bound session. 